Welcome to the Mission Cleveland weekly podcast, encouragement and hope in a despairing world. Good to be here for the second Sunday in Lent, also the second Sunday we have worshiped in this space, and isn't it just so great to be here? Um, we're trying all of our lights on tonight. Uh, we do have a little bit of a buzz coming through the speakers, so hopefully we can get that figured out. But um, it's just a warm and beautiful space for us. Praise the Lord. Lord, we come before you as we settle in and reflect on your word, and we remember those words of our opening collect that there is no power in ourselves to help ourselves. That it's not about the strength of this world. It's not about the warrior horse, as we read in the psalm, but it's about you and our lives submitted before you. And so, Lord, just teach us this Lent and beyond to come before you with humility, to lay it down before you, to lay our lives down before you, and trust that you are a God who provides, who cares, who sees who will not let us go. Come, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. In in preparation for something I wanted to say tonight, I I thought a lot about the the experience, the word, and experience of, of loyalty. And I thought about my dad, who was born in the late 40s, and my mom born in the 50s, and how different that word, the experience of loyalty, seems today. Like my dad went to the same Buick dealer every single time he bought a car, right? Like even when I got old enough to buy a car, like he wanted me to go to the Buick dealer, right? Like the Buick dealer shows up to his funeral when he passes away. I mean, it's that kind of loyalty, Right, And I've probably known like four or five people in my life, not very many, who have worked at the same job for like 40 years. I mean, that is amazing. It's, it really is amazing to me when I, I just love to hear people's stories, but that is so rare. I read a statistic this week that the average American consumer is a member of 14 loyalty programs, <laughs> and we use about half of those. I can't even tell you how many streaming services I'm a part of. Like if I look at my bank statement, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm like still a member. I'm still paying like five bucks a month for that service or whatever, right? Am I the only one that like doesn't track that very well? (laughs) If I am, I'm really embarrassed if that's true. But um, loyalty just seems to kind of take a different shape, a different form today. And I think Lent can be a time when we check in with our loyalties, we assess our loyalties and we ask ourselves, like, what am I attached to that may not be healthy for me? And so I don't mean at all to indicate like we don't have loyalties. I do think that it may be harder to kind of pin those down and say, okay, this is actually what I'm giving my life or or my will or my desire might be going toward. And so it may take a little bit more work because we're not going to the same Buick dealer for the every time we buy a car, right? Like, there's so many things. Like, if we're loyal to everything, it seems like we're kind of maybe loyal to less 
um, intense things, right? We're not as connected to them, but still, are we loyal? And I don't know, I want to talk mainly about Genesis 12 and the call of Abram. And I don't know if what Abram is doing is leaving loyalties. I kind of think maybe that he is. I mean, he leaves place, he leaves family, he leaves home. I mean, those are some pretty deep realities for us if you think about those in your own life, right? We have to be careful about bringing our own context into view and, and making it the same thing. But place or land, people were known and named after place, like the Hittites, the Canaanites, right? They were known for the places that they lived, right? It was an identity marker. And people are also known by their families. I mean, we're still known by our families today, aren't we? Like we carry our family names. So in a lot of ways, I want to say Abram, in in some sense, is leaving identity markers when God calls him. And it's remarkable because Abram doesn't really have a lot of God's story to reflect on. Like he, he doesn't have Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Abram doesn't have that. He doesn't have, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Abram doesn't have that. What does Abram have? He's got this command to go. To go and I will show you. It's an imperative. It's a command. In some translations, it's translated, get out. Go. And I will show you. So Abram went as the Lord told him. Abraham leaves those identity markers of people, place, and home, and he puts his faith in God. And it's interesting that between the the, the story of the flood and God's covenant with Noah in Genesis 7 and 9 and, and what we're reading in Genesis 12, the call of Abraham, we get the story of the Tower of Babel. And... It appears like the post-world community kind of settled in this place, Shinar, it's referred to in Genesis 12, which is the day, modern day, Baghdad, the capital of Iraq. And most of us can recall the story, but what I'd like to do is just draw our attention to the intent of why they were building that tower in the first place. Here's what we read in Genesis 11. Come. Let us build ourselves a city. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. You can see a little bit of the intent there of why this is important to them, why they're building a city, while they're building a tower. It's to make a name for themselves because if they get scattered, there won't be a name in a sense. I mean, we can probably relate to that if we think about the idea, although we probably don't face the threat of that in the same sense. We don't. But just imagine what it might feel like to get scattered I mean, have you seen, like, just recently, whatever, the city that Russia just 
overtook in the Ukraine. I saw someone just carrying their suitcase out of the city and your heart just goes out to them, right? They're, they've lost their home. Like what, that, that's got to invoke some fear in us when we, if we're kind of alive inside and we're watching those kinds of scenes take place. There's a fear for them of being scattered and separated. And that makes sense to us in some way. And it's a fear because scattered people don't have a name. They're not able to make a name, at least not like they could if they were all together. And there's a distinction here I just want to point out, because I think we might have a tendency to hear their desire to make a name as as something like, well, they want to be known, or they want to have fame in some way, or they want their name to be remembered. And again, we have to be careful not to read into this story our own cultural narratives that trend toward narcissism or grandiosity of name. The biblical idea of scattering is a threat because it disrupts the notion of immortality. It's in the post-flood world of Abram that the pagan way to achieve immortality was through building a city, multiplying, and creating a name. So that when you die, your name continues into the future. That's how you make a name for yourself. You build a city, you populate it, and your name goes into the future forever. At least in the context of Babylon, there's... Not, it doesn't appear that there's a concept of God giving a name to a people and a population. So, of course, we're still dying, right? People are still dying. And so the only way imagined for immortality was to create a name for themselves, to build immortality themselves. So when God comes to Abram and calls him to go, I believe God is speaking specifically to this cultural fear. The only way that we survive in the world is to stay. The only way that we have a name for ourselves is to stay, to build, to populate. The only way we can be immortal and live forever is through the name that we make for ourselves. And so God says to Abram in Genesis 12, leave your loyalties, leave your family, leave your home, leave your land, and I will make your name great. I will make a great nation of you. And God does with Abram what I think God often does with us. He gives Abram just enough to move. Abram doesn't get the whole story. He just gets enough, just enough to, to, to take that step, that incremental first step or the second step. And he doesn't get the whole point A to point B. He's got to step out in faith. And that's the beautiful story of Abram. Just gets enough to move. When it comes to, as I think about it for myself at least, when it comes to breaking loyalties, I think we relate more to Nicodemus than we do Abram. We probably identify more with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he comes to us as this kind of ambivalent figure. He's a Pharisee, but he comes to Jesus at night. Very likely he's coming to Jesus at night because he can't be seen with Jesus. And the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus 
at least to me, like it feels unsettling because there's not really any resolution in that story, in that particular passage. You see Nicodemus come, and then there's some confusion, and he goes back, and there's not really, like you don't know what to do with Nicodemus if you just read that particular passage in our gospel. He doesn't even really seem to understand Jesus. Jesus is teaching about being born from above, seeing and entering the kingdom of God, and it's clear to us that Nicodemus is no Abram. He's not ready to break away from his loyalties. Can you relate to that? I I definitely can relate to this story of Nicodemus. And while Nicodemus' ambivalence can be unsettling to us, we might also just see ourselves there. We might just see parts of us there. The parts of us that can resist the call of Jesus, parts of us that ponder and question, the parts of us that after a long time of prayer, we just end up, it seems, with more questions than we had before. What I love about Jesus here is that Jesus doesn't come down hard on Nicodemus. He's very patient. He's so very kind with Nicodemus and with everyone. He's just so very kind. And can you just see how kind Jesus is? Isn't that amazing? Can you just kind of watch how Jesus works with him? Nicodemus misses the meaning of Jesus' words. Jesus is talking about being born again. Nicodemus just can't figure it out. He just can't make sense of what Jesus is saying. He's taking it very literally. And I just see Nicodemus as someone who really wants to understand Jesus. Like he's like leaning in. He's trying to understand Jesus, but it just doesn't seem to make sense to him. The last words we get from Nicodemus in the gospel reading tonight are these. How can these things be? <laughs> I think if, if we're honest with ourselves, we've probably had a lot of how can these things be conversations with Jesus. I've had my share. How can, how can it turn out this way? I wasn't expecting this, Jesus. What are you talking about, Jesus? Like, how can you be who you say you are? How can I continue following you? How can these things be? What an honest question Nicodemus asked there. Nicodemus gives us a picture, I think, into our own heart of our own intrigue with Jesus. While we still can hold on to some identities of people, places, things, we still hold on to those. And sometimes our unbroken loyalties actually can keep us from seeing the kingdom of God as it is present all around us in the world. It does seem, though, like if you read the Gospel of John in John 19, it does seem like Nicodemus comes around. We see Nicodemus at Jesus' burial along with Mary Magdalene and the mother of Jesus, he's bringing burial spices to Jesus. He's preparing. He doesn't come to him any longer at night. He seems to be very comfortable coming to Jesus to serve his body well. Somewhere, Nicodemus' intrigue with Jesus wins out in the end, and it breaks his loyalties with the Pharisees. I believe that's true of him. 
Maybe, maybe Nicodemus can help us remember that even when we fail, that, that when we stumble or get tripped up in our own religious experiences, that God does not ever give up on us. I love if we kind of read Nicodemus that way, like Jesus is kind and patient with Nicodemus. And as we all know, in our own humanness, we will fail, we will miss the point, we'll not understand Jesus, but God doesn't give up on us. That even when we miss it the first time, or if our faith is growing cold, our hearts can be grow, grow back into the place where maybe our affection used to burn for Jesus, if that's gotten cold, or where we just got confused and things got muddled and we just don't know what to do with our faith right now. Nicodemus, I think, can give us some hope. But we're not just looking at Nicodemus, we're looking at the way Jesus continues to work out our life, continue to draw us to himself. I just thought I would like to invite us this Lent to at least consider, like, what, what was it like for you when you first encountered Jesus? Maybe that was a long time ago for you, but did you write anything down? Did you keep a journal? Did you like send some text messages to a friend? Or is there any way that you can go back this Lent and go back and read over some of those things? A letter, perhaps, or just a note that you left along the way, some, some breadcrumb trail that might lead you back to that original affection, that original experience with Jesus. Maybe go back there. Spend some time this Lent remembering that original affection. Well, Nicodemus, as I said, is no Abram. Abram breaks his loyalty and he follows the call of God. And if we read the story in Genesis, we find like when Abram arrives in Canaan, here's what we read, Genesis 12, 5. And when they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, we read, there were Canaanites in the land. Can you imagine, I mean, Abram has left his loyalties, he's left everything, he's traveled 400 and some miles, it seems, with tents and flocks and everything, and he gets to the place God's called him to go, and he looks out on the land, and there are Canaanites already residing in the land. I, I, how would you respond to that? For me, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, if I, if I didn't know what was going to happen in this story, I would be so shocked, Right? Are you kidding me? Like, I came all this way, Lord, and this is what you're going to reward me with for all the things that I've done to sacrifice and follow you? That's my heart. That's not Abram's. Thank God. Praise God. Abram doesn't do that. He doesn't fall into the trap of apathy or just give in to his exhaustion if he was exhausted. You know what he does? He listens to the voice of God who says to him, to your offspring, I will give you this land. And when the Lord appears to Abram, Abram builds an altar. He builds an altar. Abram gets to the new place God is calling him and he sees, I'm guessing, something he did not expect to see. And he didn't give in to that. He built an altar there. On the preaching team, we started talking about building altars and how important that is for us in this world. 
We probably don't do this. Very, when was the last time you built an altar, show of hands? <laughs> Been a while for me. Altars were built in order to say God was here, and it was a way to worship the Lord. And they're especially needed when God shows up and we don't expect what we're seeing. We've got to have the altar that brings sacramentally the life of God, the reality of God into our world. And so we build an altar. And I don't know what tools we do that with today. You know, maybe this church is one of those things. Maybe this church itself is an altar of saying God provided for us. And we're not where we're going to go yet, but we're going to get there by God's grace. But I also think that we build altars with our words, and that's what I want to encourage us to do. We build altars with our words. We've got to tell the stories of how God appears to us in this world, or we will forget it, or we'll start to walk around, and we'll stumble around in the darkness, and we will forget how living and active God actually is in our lives. So if you're in a mission community, Could you just take a moment as you go to your mission communities over the next few weeks and just think, how is God showing up in my life? How can I build an altar in my mission community just as a reminder of God's presence? If you're not in a mission community or or you just don't feel comfortable doing it in that way, can I just invite you? I would love Peyton, Luke, I would, we would all love to hear those stories. We might even ask if we could share, just read your story even here, because I think it's oftentimes something that the entire church needs to hear. Or maybe it's just you getting some time with a friend and talking about how you experienced God last week or or yesterday. It switches the conversation, right? It takes us out of that, that place where we're groaning and longing for something and we recognize that God actually is present in our lives. And just lastly, I'll say, just as we come into the space of celebrating communion, we we do come to the altar. It's not like some of us may have experienced in our youth, like it's an altar call. It's different than that. And it's not just remembering that God is here, because God actually is here. But when we take in the bread and the, the juice, when we take in the body and blood of Christ, we are being reminded we are being remembered we're kind of living altars in a sense but can we friends take that reality the reality of god's goodness that god still appears to us that he appears to us here as we worship him as we come to the table as we go out as we eat pizza after this can we remember that our lord still appears to us and give voice to that in the name of the father son and holy spirit Amen. Speak truth to my heart. Thanks for listening. Join us at the Mission Cleveland next week.